Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Montevistic, Colorado. Dear Rabbi Greg, hello Rabbi. We love your sermons. Ha. I love how straightforward you are about God and Yeshua. We pray that there are many more. We would love to see you in person sometime. We are from San Antonio, Texas. We would also love to go to the 2024 Israel trip. Um, sincerely. Michael, um, if you and your mom, I presume it's you and your mom, I am just feel that, want to come to Beth Yeshua and you can't afford it, I will pay your way to come. So let me know. Uh, call the office this week or send us a note. And if you want to do that, we will make that happen, okay? Um, I've been involved with the Messianic movement for 30 years. You know, I used to say that I've only been a believer for five years, ten years, and it seemed like such a short period of time. But 30 years is a long time, a long time, especially when you're involved with it every day. Yet, I want you to know that does not make me an authority on all things messianic, nor does it mean that I have it all figured out, not by any stretch of the imagination. I do my best to understand what the Bible is saying, of course, and then I try and simplify it so we can all just get the message. I have seen my fair share of people come into the Messianic movement over the 30 years, majoring on the minors. Yeshua himself makes reference to this in Matthew 23, where he says that of those who were overly concerned about minutia, but grossly blind to enormous sins like hypocrisy and dishonesty and cruelty and greed. He said they were careful to tithe their mint and their dill and their cumin, while at the same time they neglected the weightier issues like justice, mercy, and trust. Yeshua referred to it as straining out a gnat, but swallowing a camel. Um, if you know about the first century, they drank a lot of wine. The water was not good, so they drank wine over water. And the wine was a sweet wine. And um, sweet wines attract gnats. So as they would drink the sweet wine, they would actually strain the gnats between their teeth, very careful to make sure they didn't ingest the gnat. And then he says, but you'll swallow a camel, not a cow. A camel is the largest unclean animal in Israel. Look, guys, I know we're all just trying to figure it out. I know that we're always learning and trying to get new revelation. Some of us anyway. Some of us are so set in their theology that they have what I call spiritual rigor mortis. They're not teachable, not even by the Holy Spirit. To this pursuit of trying to figure it out, when it comes to fundamental issues, there must be unity. There must be. Cross-denominational lines, if you call yourself a follower of Messiah. When it comes to subordinate issues, there must be liberty. But in all things, there must be charity. In other words, stop fighting. We need to try and make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. If there is heresy or an anti-biblical doctrine, then of course I say separate yourselves from it. By the same token, I have many Christian brothers and sisters in the faith that I love dearly and that I consider part of my family as they consider me part of their family. I will not allow Satan to use things like food and feasts to divide us. With that being said, I believe a discussion about these very things is important. Now, why do I say it's important? 
The congregation I took over overnight when I first got into the Messianic movement, it was called Beth Judah in Ormond Beach. They had a terrible situation happen, one of the worst I've seen. The only worst situation I've seen was what happened here about 12 years ago. But it was horrible what happened at Beth Judah. It was a um, one of the first congregations in the whole MJAA, actually, that was able to build a building, which was astounding for a Messianic Jewish congregation, most of them with 25 people. And we had just built the building, we had, and uh, we were happy. We were really happy. Most of us were Jews. The whole eldership was Jews. It was Bernie Toba and Barry Brummer, Greg Hirschberg, um, Dennis Richards, um, Harry Berger, Shelley London. The congregation was mostly Jewish. And so food and feast never came up. There was nothing to discuss. We weren't asking ourselves why we worship on Saturday. That's what we did growing up. We didn't, we didn't take, we didn't take Saturday out of the mix. We didn't take the feast out of the mix. We just brought Yeshua in. The Bible says as many as received him, they were to be called sons of God. We weren't giving anything. We, it, Yeshua didn't ask us to give up the, our Judaism. He asked to receive him. So for us, it was a no-brainer. Then I come to Mactown and, And, and literally, it's, it's been challenging. I'm not, not looking for a violin, but because we have people coming in here, and they're not necessarily coming because they want to follow Messianic Judaism. See, at Beth Judah, everybody that came was looking for a Messianic Jewish congregation. They wanted to live a Messianic Jewish lifestyle. Here, some people hear a sermon, they like my approach, they like how straightforward it is, and they start coming, and they start liking it, and they start loving it. Until they find out, what do you mean you don't celebrate Christmas? And if I built this building again, I would definitely build a revolving door. Or they're coming six months and then you don't eat. What? And that's why I don't push it. But I'm begging you not to as well. God, forgive me, but you make a bad name for the Messianic community. Just like people don't like Bible thumpers. They don't like food and feast thumpers. I can't understand why Gentiles will focus on the minutia and not focus on Yeshua. So a discussion needs to be had. This discussion I never had at Beth Judah. Never. I just will tell you, as always, you have two ears, one for listening, one for letting go. Use the listening one today. I'm going to speak about this again next week because I don't want to be rushed, and see if it resonates with the Scriptures, if it resonates with the Holy Spirit. But the bottom line is, you are more than entitled. I don't even have to entitle you, but I feel like I have to say this, to walk out the faith as you see fit. The fact of the matter is, you're going to do that anyway, right? You're all in control of your own lives. You all make your own decisions. I can't make any decisions for you, nor do I want to. I've never wanted my theology to be imposed upon your theology. Never. Never. But I think you'll see this is biblically correct, I'm hoping, and I think you'll see this is logically correct, really. So, because kashrut, clean eating, and moadim, Hebrew words for the feast, because those two are found in the Torah, I think we first have to ask ourselves, what is Torah? Because some people will tell you, oh, the Torah, I'm not even sure. Oh, the Torah, that's the first five books, the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Deuteronomy. That's Torah. Not exactly. Not according to the strict definition. And I know this is going to get a tad technical, but sometimes you've got to hear more than just rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, let's eat. So bear with me. Let's look at the first time this word shows up in Exodus 24, 12. And it says, Adonai said to Moshe, this is quote from the Lord, come up to me on the mountain and stay there. I will give you the stone tablets with the Torah and the mitzvot commandments I have written on them so that you can teach them. Okay. So we're going to look at this word Torah. We're going to look it up in the Hebrew lexicon because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And the word means law, direction, instruction. So what this word basically means, God's Torah, is his teachings. That's what it means, God's teachings. The root word that I've been put up here, not every Hebrew word has a root, but this has a root and an important root. It's called the ara, and it means to shoot. And it's likened to shooting an arrow and hitting the mark. In other words, God's Torah in God's kingdom for God's children, if obeyed, is getting it right. It's, it's that simple. A five-year-old can understand that, right? Like, that's how you get it right. Simple? Sure. Etymologically, the word Torah refers more to teaching than it does law. Our flesh that we still have, some of us have more than others, but we all have a component. We all have this in nature. It hates law. It hates law. I know people that are stopped on the highway by a police officer because they are breaking the law and they look at him like, don't you have something better to do than to pull me over for merely speeding? Don't you have an important crime? You're committing a crime. The laws are there so you don't kill somebody. If you want to drive like an imbecile and look down at your phone and be on a dirt road and kill yourself, that's your prerogative. But there's other people that you're responsible for and you could hurt them by being a jerk. So our flesh hates laws. It doesn't matter if you're at Burger King. I see people all the time, and the rule is no wearing shoes because if a kid is wearing a boot and he goes down the slide with that boot and another kid doesn't get off the slide in time and that kid's like two or three years old and he gets kicked in the head, he can have a concussion or worse, a brain bleed. And then somebody tells you, excuse me, sir, and right there, you're going to tell me what to do? Who are you? I'm the, I'm, I'm the Burger King. That's who I am. I'm the king of the burgers. And it's almost like you, you, everybody gets bowed up. That's your flesh, man. You, 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 you can't submit. You gotta be your own king and your own God. And then you go, but I love the Lord. No, you don't. You think you do. I'm telling you, you don't. How dare you say that to me, Rabbi? I'm saying it to you. Because if you don't submit to something that you do see, you cannot submit to something that you don't see. So show me insubordination and I'll show you a non-God-fearer every day of the week. These rules are there to protect people, to prevent chaos. Your soul loves Torah. Your flesh hates it, just despises it. The Torah instructs man on who God is and what his righteousness looks like. In other words, if, if the Torah turned into a man, we'd see exactly the way that 
wait a minute, Torah did turn into a man. A little bit more than that. He was more than just the Torah, because the Torah has to bleed. The Torah is the national constitution of Israel. So you're all boasting about how grafted you are and you're part of the commonwealth? Well, why don't you obey the commonwealth rules? Oh, rather, I'm going to focus on food and feast. I'm not going to focus on morality. God's going to be impressed with that, even though I don't help anybody. I mean, I help my own. My family gets help, but I'm not going to extend any past that. It is the national constitution of Israel describing how God, the great king himself, wants his people to function in his kingdom. And by the way, the Torah is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. It's ways of ways of pleasantness, and all its paths to peace. Amen. That's right out of the Bible, by the way. That's Proverbs 3. First of all, allow me to say that the confusion with the Torah comes into play more with Paul's letters than it does with the Gospels. The Gospel is clear-cut. If you ask any Orthodox rabbi that has ever studied the life of Jesus, he will say he was a very Torah-observant Jew. He had to be. If he didn't observe the Torah, then his blood is tainted. We don't have a legitimate sacrifice dying for the sins of the world. He said, I did not come to abolish. Just stop right there. I know some of you heard the law is nailed to the cross. I know you heard that. How could that be? How could what's holy, just, and good be nailed to the cross? Do you understand what you're saying? You're saying that once Yeshua died, if you believe in him, now you can steal and lie and commit adultery and turn a blind eye to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Do you hear what you're saying? That's preposterous. That's anti-biblical. That's demonic. It's a demonic doctrine. So there's no problem with the Gospels. We get it. But then we read Paul's letters and everything goes haywire. Everybody interprets these letters differently. There is no two interpretations alike. Every ministry just interprets it differently. Here's the problem. One of the major reasons for this, this confusion, is that the Greek language of Paul's day, which is what the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek, it possessed, it didn't have any word or word group corresponding to modern day terms like legalism, legalist, or legalistic. In other words, Paul had no way in the, in the Greek language of his day to express those terms. So law and legalism was basically the same word. So you'd have to understand who he was, know who he was writing to, and what the subject matter before you could have a knee-jerk reaction to what he was saying, which is what we have. Paul had no way of expressing the difference between law and legalism in the language of his day. Because of this, and it's huge, guys, I believe we need to be careful not to have this knee-jerk reaction when we see certain terms in his epistles that initially look as though they are saying the law is bad or worse yet that the law is history. For instance, I'm just going to grab a verse here and there. I'm not going to belabor it. Galatians 
2.16 says, and I'm reading from the King James Version for a reason, because I'll bring you back to the complete Jewish Bible. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Looking up this word that's highlighted, what is he referring to? The word in Greek, render righteous, it means to be redeemed. It means to be forgiven of your sins. Meaning, there is no way on God's green earth that you will ever be forgiven of your sins by obeying the law. Because if you break one law, you broke the entirety of it. God's passing grade is 100%. Not 98, not 99. He set it up that way for a reason. To humble us, to bring us to our knees. That was the point. That we would understand what he was doing. In other words, what this is saying, basically, is that the Torah cannot save you. It was actually given to a people already saved. The children of Israel were saved or redeemed in Exodus 12. But they didn't receive the law until Exodus 19. You follow? They received the law after they were delivered. Well, we too have been saved. And as New Covenant believers, we too have received the law, not written on tablets of stone, but written on the tablets of our heart. Post-salvation. Post-salvation. So we have been saved by grace, just as they were, not by works. 100% grace, 0% works. This is our jumping off point. This is where we all have to be on the same playing field. Every single believer, not just in this room, but every believer in the body of Messiah. With that being said, we have to delve into another term in the same verse called works of the law. Let me show you how confusing this is. Again, looking in the King James, which is the most popular version for the most part. Galatians 2.16 again. Knowing that a man is not justified, we're not saved by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. What are we talking about here? Let's look it up. Ergon nomos. Basically, works of law. That's that's what it means. Ergon works, nomos law. He's not talking about acts of righteousness because we're supposed to do acts of righteousness. What else is there to do after we get saved and after we're a member of the kingdom? But you must, for the love of God, study in context because you can do such damage, such and some of it's irreversible. Not acts of righteousness, but a legalistic observance in order to gain salvation. A legalistic observance in order to gain salvation. Therefore, this verse is far better, far better translated than the CJB. The CJB has a couple of issues, I think. I think sometimes David Stern, who passed away recently, was so brilliant. I think sometimes he uses... Words that are difficult for people to understand, but he was just an off the charts legitimate genius. With that being said, look at Galatians 2.16. 
It says, even so we have come to realize that a person is not declared righteous, talking about redemption, by God on the ground of his legalistic observance of Torah commands, but through the Messiah Yeshua's trusting faithfulness. It's not even your faith. It's the object of your faith. You are trusting in what he did as the answer for the forgiveness of your sins. That's why he is called the faithful servant, not us. We have faith in his faithfulness. Therefore, we too have put our trust in Messiah Yeshua and become faithful to him in order that we might be declared righteous on the ground of the Messiah's trusting faithfulness and not on the ground of our legalistic observance of Torah commands. We have been saved by grace. By the way, remember how I told you that the natural man and the flesh hates... What does it hate? It hates law. It hates grace. It can't deal with grace. Because if it accepts grace... It has to extend grace. And the fleshly man don't want to forgive nobody. We're not saved on the ground of our legalistic observance of Torah commands. For on the ground of legalistic observance of Torah commands, no one, no one, no one will be declared righteous. Every one of us has a book in heaven. It says God opened up in Revelation the book of life and then he says he opened up the books. I'm curious, what, what books? Is there another book besides the book of life? Yes. Every one of us has a book. And if you go before God and have the audacity, the audacity to sit there and tell him how good you were, he's going to turn away from you as you're talking and he's going to go to this bookshelf. And he's going to pull your book off. And he's going to say, "Oh, please tell me more of all the great things you've done. And when you're finished, you see this? This is full of all the things that you shouldn't have done. But not just sins of commission. I, I have other volumes on you. Sins of omission, things you should have done that you didn't do. So go on and then I'll take over and we'll put them on the scale and see what outweighs what. The law was given to reveal our sin and not to become our Savior. This, of course, now hear me because this already ruffled some of your little legalistic feathers. I, I love the Torah. I kiss the Torah. Good. Let the Torah save you. First of all, if I hear one more Gentile tell me the Torah observant, I'm going to kill myself. You're not Torah observant. You might be trying to be. I'll agree with you there. But as far as I know, only Yeshua was Torah observant. Anybody know anybody that's obeyed the Torah perfectly every day of their life since they got saved? Just curious. I'd love to meet that person. I ain't never seen a person walk on water, but I'd love to take that person to the beach. <laughs> Just because the Torah was not to become our Savior, this, of course, does not mean, let me take it to the other side. Look, I know I'm kind of an equal opportunity basher. When I meet Jewish people, which I meet all the time, and they tell me how Torah observant they are, I go at them. When I meet Gentiles that tell me how Torah observant they are, I go at them. When I see people that say the law doesn't count, I go at them. When I see people say the law is so important, I go at them. Because both positions are off. There has to be law and grace. 
If it's a hundred percent law, we all fail. And there's no way of recovery. It's a gutter ball. All law, no grace. It's a gutter ball. You walk in that, it's dangerous. You know why? It's total destruction. And some of you think you walk in it. Which is, wow! Not only you, you don't even see the destruction. That's deception. And you say, but look at all the people, Rabbi, that are all grace. They're grace abusers. They're deceived. Yes. And if you think you obey the law perfectly, you're deceived with them. Of course, I'm not telling you that we should be lawless. No. Or this law was nailed to us. Of course, I'm not saying that. In fact, if you are born again, it doesn't mean the law was nailed to the cross. It means the law was nailed to your heart. The things that I'm not doing anymore that I used to do, I had no problem doing them. My conscience was seared. I didn't feel any guilt. None. Zero. In fact, I felt pretty good about it. People say, Rabbi, when you were doing that stuff, you felt bad, right? You weren't having a good time. I didn't feel bad and I was having a great time. You're totally wrong. But once the law was nailed to my heart, any little thing that I do off, I feel horrible. So I'm not saying that just because the law can't be our savior, that we should kick it to the curb. So works of law, doing works of righteousness, that's what you should be doing. But works of righteousness to impress God, that's what you shouldn't be doing. No way. You're going to upstage the cross? You're a legend in your own mind. Guys, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but every great man of God or woman of God since the disciples to the current time, if you look over the greats, every one of them, if they were here, will tell you as they got closer to God, the more humble they became, the uglier they looked in their own eyes. So if you're proud of yourself, you do not have a close relationship with my father. You do not. If you're impressed with yourself, you do not. Rabbi, you're assaulting me. No, the Holy Spirit is trying to wake you up, brother. And I am not taking credit for it. That's straight Bible 101. Humble yourself in the sight of God. That's not my opinion. How could you not? I don't even get it. Every time I hang with God, I experience humility. Every time. You, you, you really think your picture is the only one on his fridge? What's wrong with you? Don't you read Paul's testimony? Don't you read what he went through? Left for dead, left naked, beaten with rods, whipped, stoned. It was horrific. Or a guy like Job, you don't come close. And Paul said, I consider it dung. Any accolade I have, I consider it crap. And Job said, I spoke too soon. Forgive me. Where do you get off? That's ugly, man. That's spiritually ugly. There's one other thing we have to go over. And it's not works of the law. It's under the law, which has caused even more confusion. Look at Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, Paul says to the believers in Rome. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. You tell me how many people have misunderstood this. Okay, I'm not under the law. What does that mean? Law is history. I'm under grace, right? Okay, if you read it that way, sure. Now let's look up the word. 
The other one was ergon nomos, works of law. This is upo nomos, under the law. It is not rendered under the law, but in subjection to the system that results from perverting Torah into legalism. Torah perversion, spiritual perversion. Again, its usage in the CJB lends itself to a much better translation that Paul would have had loved to use, but he didn't have the English language. He was hampered. He had no word to separate law from legalism. We do. So take a look at verse 14. It says, for sin will not have authority over you. True? Because you are not under legalism. You see the difference? It's huge. Guys, it's huge. You are not... Man, I wish you could see what I say. Forgive me, that sounds arrogant. But man, you should have been like, wow! Sin does not have authority over the born-again believer. Yeshua has authority over the born-again believer. He or she, referring to the born-again believer, is not obeying God for their salvation. They are obeying God because of their salvation. I read you a psalm this morning. David said that I've been forgiven, therefore I fear you, God. It births fear and respect and awe and reverence and a desire to obey. You think you're obeying because you're good? Or you obey and go, look what I did. I gave 10%. I helped out a homeless person. I'm good. That comes from God's grace. He did that. He made that happen. Give God the glory. We're used to being in the world, right? Some of us have accomplished great things. Not in God's kingdom. That doesn't fly. Nobody cares about how much you know. Nobody cares about how your business grew. Nobody cares about your little trophies in the kingdom of God. You who are the most humble will be greatest in God's kingdom. The born-again believer does not obey God to gain favor from Him, but to show love towards Him. The born-again believer has received the Holy Spirit, the power for holy living, and he is motivated to live holy by love for the Savior as opposed to fear of punishment. I hope. I mean, that's what the Bible says, but I hope some of us get that. I hope you're obeying God because you just love Him. You just love Him. You say, I don't understand this. I love you so much more than anything else. I love you more than life. I don't get it, God. How did this happen? You opened up chambers in my heart that I didn't know existed. I fell in love with the Lord when I met Him. That's how I met Him. And then I walked into a Messianic synagogue, and this is the first song I heard. We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house. And I thought, that's weird. Praise is a sacrifice? I don't know if you met who I met. Rabbi, I like that song. Sorry. (laughs) Much of Christian theology about Torah is based on what I would say is a misunderstanding of these two expressions which Paul invented. Under the law, ergon nomos, and works of the law, upo nomos. They appear 20 times in his epistles. 20 times, that's a lot. Paul considers both these expressions negatively. Under law and works of law both refer to legalism. 
Christian theology, on the other hand, views them as within the framework of observing Torah. That's how they define it, within the framework of observing Torah. So within the framework of observing Torah is bad. It's bad. But this can't be true. It can't be true. Not my opinion, not your opinion. All we need to do is read the following verse from Romans 6.14 and you'll see it's not true. Look at Romans 6.14. I'll read them both to you in the KJV and the CJB and that's all the scripture I have for you today. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, so some might go, okay, so the law is not, it has nothing to do with me. I'm under grace. It says, what then? Ask the question. Paul's using the objector. Shall we sin? In other words, shall we become more lawless? Shall we do lawless deeds? Shall we do acts of unrighteousness? I know it sounds nuts that he had to put it there. But he had to put it there. Because he was hampered in the language of his day. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbids it. Not God forbid the way secular people say it. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm on my way. I hope I don't get a flag. God forbid. God bless you. What are you saying God bless you for? You don't even know God. I'm talking about Paul saying, as a person who knows God, God forbids this. God forbids acts of unrighteousness. God forbids lawless acts. Forbids it. It's forbidden. Like the forbidden fruit. No touchy. Don't go near it. Look at in Romans 6, 14, 15 in the CJB. It essentially says the same thing. For sin will not have authority over you because you are not under legalism but under grace. Therefore, what conclusion should we reach? Let's go on sinning because we're not under legalism but under grace. Heaven forbids it. Those who are afraid of grace insist that it gives license for sinning. Do you know what? I think some people come to the Messianic movement honestly. And they're comfortable. You know why? Because all their life they've been beaten up. They've been beaten up. They've been told what to do by a parent. Maybe they were in the military. I don't know. But they've been ordered around. And they feel good about God ordering them and making them do stuff. And it makes them feel good. And then they go around and order everybody else around. Like, I'm doing it, then you have to do it. You follow? I'm, I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing this? Who died and left you boss? When did you become Messiah's militia? Grace does not give a person license for sinning. It gives a person love for the Lord. And they end up not wanting to hurt him by sinning. Paul meets this error head on. Head on. By asking the question... And then flat out denying it. He asked the question, should we go on sinning? No way, he says. No way. We are free from the law, but we are not lawless. Grace means free to serve the Lord. And free to not sin against Him. Not free to do whatever you want. Free to serve the Lord. We're free to love the Lord. The last time I checked, we are enslaved. We're slaves of righteousness. Paul called himself a slave. A bondservant. Who wouldn't want to be a bondservant to doing good? Who wouldn't want to be a bondservant to blessing others? Oh, we want blessing. Sure we do. But you are not called to be a terminal of God's blessing. We were called to be a channel of God's blessing. In Romans 6.1, he says, shall we continue in sin? Here the question is, 
shall we sin just a little? Just a little? How about if 90%? How about if I just tithe in my sin? How about if... Listen, this is impressive though. Sitting down with God and going, 90% of the time I will not sin. I don't even think there's anybody in here who can get away with saying that. Some of you I know all too well. I wouldn't even be 50-50. Not even close. Rabbi, why do you push this? Because if I press me down and I press you down, God gets lifted up. And that's my objective. Satan wants to bring God down. He wants to bring God on our level. He wants us to say, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus ain't your homeboy, homie. Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah of the world. Legalism is not what you do, but the reason behind why you are doing it. Most of us will say at points in our life, I don't know why I did that. Anybody ever said that? Come on. Everybody show your hands. Whoever doesn't show your hand, please leave. Anybody ever said, why did I say that? Come on. So what are we saying to ourselves? I don't understand what motivates my heart. Okay, so we don't even understand the motivations of our own heart. Sometimes, sometimes we do. How the heck are you going to understand the motivations of somebody else? How quick you are on the trigger. It's, oh my God, how quick. Do you know what another person is going through? Do you know if you meet a woman and she's a lunatic in front of you online at Starbucks and she just got a text from her husband that says, I'm leaving. Do you know that? You don't know that. You've got to give people the same benefit of the doubt that God is giving us. The spirit of legalism wants a person to believe that they are in some way superior to others. Let me repeat that. It's rampant in the messianic movement, but it's just as rampant in the Christian community, especially among those who are super duper. The spirit of legalism wants a person to believe that they are in some way superior to others due to a circumstance, their testimony. I never shared my testimony for years. First of all, I I didn't know you were supposed to, because I was a brand new believer. Secondarily, it was sacred. I wasn't going to share it with people. No way. And then people said, no, no, you need to share it. So I started to share it. It sounds really cool, right? Jewish boy goes to Israel, gets saved on the Transfiguration Mountain on Yom Kippur. He meets Yeshua. Wow. You should write a book about that. You shouldn't be impressed with it. I was so far gone, I needed something like that. God was gracious to me. What did I have to do with the vision? What did you have to do with getting saved? Well, let me in on a secret. I know, I know, I know. I could have a mega church. I know. Clean up my act a little bit. Don't offend. I could, I could have so many people. I know. Tell a few more jokes. I'm a really funny guy. I know. Guys, you don't have to worry. You're sitting there shaking your head saying, please, Rabbi, don't, because if, if you go that route, I'll leave. First of all, don't give yourself that much credit. Secondly, I'm not doing it so you don't leave. I'm doing it so he doesn't leave. That's the most important thing to me, guys. When I heard about Shana, none of you could help me. None of you even knew what was going on. Some of you got a prayer request and prayed and then went about your merry business. Are we still going out for Chinese tonight? I get it. She's not yours. 
I went to the wall. I went to the wall and saturated the floor with my tears. I go to God direct. He's the most important thing to me. He saved me. He delivered me. He continues to forgive me. And he's coming back for me. You could forget it if you think I'm going to suck up to you. But Rabbi, I give a lot. I wouldn't know. I never checked the records. Rabbi, I cut the grass. I'll find the lawnmower. Who do you think cleaned up Price Road for five years? I had no problem with it. It's the least I could do. The spirit of legalism makes a person feel special because they got a secret revelation. Do you know what the Lord's telling me? You sure he told you to tell me? I never checked. I bet you didn't. Maybe you should check first. There's things I tell Jeremy that I don't tell Shana, Max, and Lily. There's things I tell Shana that I don't tell Jeremy, Max, or Lily. You get it? Maybe when God's telling you something, it's just between a father and his kid. But we also operate in legalism when we obey a certain law that not the greater body is obeying, like food. And feast. You know what separates you from a typical Christian? Food and feasts. That is it. That is it. Food and feasts. And you want to build a feast wall and a food wall? Well, Rabbi, I met my perfect soulmate. We both love country music. We're both vegan. And we both like the beach. Wow, sounds like a match in heaven. You guys are going to have a wonderful marriage. You could be a vegan and be married to a carnivore. It's okay. The broccoli and the steak ain't going to fight each other. See what you eat, I'll eat what I eat. You don't have to declare war over that. You don't have to be the same. You can have different interests. You're your own person. God made you special with certain gifting. If you're just like your spouse, man, you want to talk about a boring household. We're the same. We do everything the same. We go everywhere together. If he dies, I die. Mm-hmm. Legalism is as different from the law, hear me, as religious spirit is as different from religion. A religious spirit is different from religion. They're not the same. When people go, he's religious, you actually complimented him. And you think you didn't. Anybody hear me? Come on. Come on, little psychopaths. How many times have you thrown around the religious spirit nonsense? Religion is a good thing. Read your Bible. The word in the New Testament is threskos. And guess what it means? What does religion mean, Rabbi? What does religious mean? It means to fear God and worship Him. And I said that was a bad thing. Maybe I should shut up. Well, at least shut up before you find out what you trying to say, and if you're really saying it, a religious spirit is bad. That's observing certain things to impress people and impress God. Fearing and worshiping God is a good thing. Therefore, a religious spirit is a type of demonic spirit that influences a person to replace a genuine relationship with God with works and traditions. Sounds like legalism? They go hand in hand. This spirit will skillfully mutter words of judgment towards others in a believer's life. If you find yourself judging a lot of people, you might have a religious spirit. 
And you didn't even know it. Because it's cloaked. And it doesn't want you to know you have it. This voice will become louder and louder against the body of Messiah until he or she feels completely justified to place blame and accuse their brethren. In fact, they go, well, they hated the prophets. Who said you were a prophet? Well, they sought Isaiah in two. They want to saw you in two because you're a jerk, not because you're a prophet. Like, by you saying that, well, I'm just operating in the prophetic and they hate... Do you hear what? Do you hear how arrogant you are? You see any of the prophets of old walking around going, I'm a prophet. I'm Isaiah the prophet. I see the prophets going, listen, I gave you the message. It was very short and sweet. Uh, no offense. This comes from God. Where, where do you think you're going? Back to the farm. Just going back to the farm. I got some fig trees to take care of. Them. No big deal. Do you really think Paul would have thought that anybody's going to read his letters? These little obscure letters he wrote? From letters he received about what was going on in these little obscure congregations with all of 22 people? You think he would have thought, hey, this is good stuff. I mean, the whole body of Messiah in 2,000 years from now are going to be studying this stuff and getting it wrong. So religion is good. A religious spirit is not. By the same token, the law is good, but legalism is not. Here's the bottom line. And next week we will we will get into it. We will get into the food and the feasts. And I will give you what I've been thinking about for 30 years. And you could say, Rabbi, I, I haven't seen it this way. Or you can go, Rabbi, thanks, but no thanks. And we're still family. You can have unity without uniformity. I just want you to know that. You don't have to agree on every item, man, to get along. This is the problem in the body of Messiah. You believe you choose the only way? Hey, brother. You believe? Hey, brother. Hey, you're going down the line. 30 different line items. And you agree. And you're like, brother. So what do you think about Christmas? Yeah, I don't celebrate it. We're done. We just, we're done. That's how some of you are. About the tribulation, about the rapture. If somebody doesn't agree with you, you're done. How's that marriage working out for you? How are you so irreconciled over minor issues? Straining in that. Ingesting a camel. The Mosaic Covenant is not faulty. It is fault finding. There's nothing wrong with it. There's something with the raw materials it's working with. Just as a mirror cannot clean a dirty face, the Torah cannot clean a dirty soul. Therefore, the problem is not with the Torah's use, but with the Torah's abuse. The book of Romans tells us that the Torah is holy, just, and good. But we must understand that when it comes to salvation, Paul, as well as the entire Bible itself, will not let anyone add or subtract from Yeshua's work at Golgotha. Do you understand that was the crux of his letters? Do you know why? Did you ever think why? Read his letters like maybe you should. Like really read the letter from cover to cover. And take your time reading it. And when you're not sure, pause and ask the Holy Spirit what this means. And read it back in context. And look up the words. And find out who the recipients were. And find out where Paul was when he wrote it. And find out what was the theme of why he was writing it. What did he hear that he was responding back to? What is the focal point? What is the message overall of the letter? Guys, Paul was a religious zealot. Paul was one of the most fanatical Jewish zealots there were. So fanatical that he got letters from the Sanhedrin to go to congregations and find his brethren 
Jewish people who have been persecuted for centuries, and he was going to persecute his own people. He would drag them out of the synagogues and bring them before the Sanhedrin and ask the Sanhedrin to give them the death penalty because these Jewish brothers of his believed in Yeshua. And all of a sudden, as he's on his way to Syria to go to another Messianic congregation and weed out the Jews who believed in Jesus, he gets knocked off his horse. And he realized, how can I be this I love God with all my heart. I kill for God. I would die for God. How could I be this wrong? How could you be the Messiah? My Messiah. And I miss it. How could I have missed it? Because we miss it. Because you're not ironclad. And he said, show me some dignity. Let me die like a samurai. I don't want to show my face. So take my head. Lop it off. At least I can die with some dignity. That's how I want to go out. And as he leans down and bends down his head, waiting for Yeshua to take that sword out of his mouth and lop it off, he feels a hand underneath his chin, and he says, I forgive you, and I love you, and you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to bring the Gentiles. It's going to be you I'm going to use to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom. And because of that experience he had, he wouldn't let anybody mess with the work at Golgotha. Nobody will add to it. Not with food, not with feasts, not with giving to the poor, not with homeless, not with going to the nursing home, not with taking care of your mother, your father, or being... Nothing will add to that work. It is a hundred percent grace. And he wouldn't let anybody mess with it. And I got saved the same way. And I'm not going to let anybody mess with it. You want to go before God and impress him? Knock yourself out. Just don't let me be near you. The execution stake of Yeshua is all sufficient. And that's why Yeshua could say, It is finished. Here's the deal. Either a finite man pays for sin for an infinite period of time, or an infinite man pays for sin for all time. The choice is yours. Let's stand together. I sent out the scriptures for next week. It's all about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and how they had a problem because Gentiles were coming into the faith. And the Jewish brethren was like, what do we do with them? We've never had anything to do with them. They're, 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 they're pagans. What do we do with them? So I'm going to try to help us, including myself, understand what was really going on. And then we're going to go over certain parts of some letters. In Colossians, and Romans, where it says the kingdom isn't about food or drink. And I believe some of you in the Messianic movement have twisted it. It's like in Colossians 2, I think you've twisted it. It's clearly in the context they were Judaizers who was telling them they had to do Shabbat. And then you read it as, don't let anybody judge you. You go, oh, those were the Gentiles that were judging the Gentiles for doing it. No, man, you're reading out of context. You twisted it to fit your theology. Why would a pagan give a crap about another pagan celebrating on Shabbat? Does that make sense to you? Hey, we have a million gods. Now they're celebrating Shabbat. That's a million and one. That's too much. 
One too much. No, man. They were Jews who were saying, if you don't do this, you're not saved. Don't mess with Golgotha. Don't you dare. After that, we'll talk about that too. Okay, okay, I get it, Rabbi. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the same page with you. It's fundamental. I'm good. Now what? What do you mean, now what? Act like Yeshua. That's what. Would Yeshua lie? Would Yeshua steal? Would Yeshua let a homeless guy be unfed? Would Yeshua not share the gospel of the kingdom with somebody? Would Yeshua disrespect an old person, not take care of a handicapped person? Come on. This isn't rocket science. This isn't rocket science, man. This is, this is basic. You know what Yeshua would do. You don't need a rubber bracelet that's overpriced to tell you what would Jesus do. Okay, what, what, what would Jesus do here? He'd kick the guy. Say, get a job. You don't need that bracelet. Forget about what would he do. Find out what he did and do likewise. Oh, you know what? Don't hold hands right now. I forgot about something. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, because sometimes you buy somebody you don't know and you hold a hand real little time and that's weird. And, and I know that feeling. That's why I'm up here and you're down there. Um, do, I, I hate to ask this, but do we have a mom here that's really up in age? Are there any moms over 80 here that have children? Your children don't have to be with you. Miss Thelma, how old are you? 82. Miss Shirley, what are you, like 82 and a half? All right, I'll tell you what. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I only brought one set of flowers for the oldest mom. I'm going to give you a set and you a set, okay? Happy Mother's Day. Love you. Now, next, youngest mom. Any mom under 21 here? Any mom under 25 here? Oh, got a bunch of old moms, huh? <laughs> Any mom between 25 and 30? How old? I hate to ask, but I got to. Only have one left. How old? 29. Twenty-seven? I don't know you that well, right? We've never met. This is good because I know them, and if I would have gave it to the 28-year-old, the 29-year-old would have had a problem with me. So here, happy Mother's Day. Also, Jamie is a consolation prize because she didn't get the flowers. Um, she's going to, she's going to, this is a real act of humility. She's a professional photographer, and if any of you moms today want pictures with your children, um, she's going to be at the wall. She's going to take them for free and send them to you for free, all for free, as just a gift from her to you guys. Okay, um, please, if you get a chance, look at those scriptures. There's nine screens. It's really not exhaustive. I would like you to read them and then study them. And don't study them with your preconceived lens. Remember what we said about yara, the root word to Torah? It means hitting the mark or getting the bullseye. If you study them with your preconceived lens, then you're putting the arrow in the wall, painting your target around it and going, look, I got a bullseye. 
But if you read it under the unction of the Holy Spirit in its context and you do a couple of word studies, I think you might find something out. And then, and then when you come in, you know, next week and I go over it, you know, my, you know, you might be able to disagree, but you'll be able to disagree not with preconceived notions, but with study. And I just want you to know I love you, so you have a right to be wrong. Okay? <laughs> know that. Now we can hold hands one more. Last time, I'll be brief. I promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua. I love you guys. Shabbat Shalom. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. Spiritual warfare. Um, we're going to be looking today and next week at something that may look and sound um, simple, easy, almost trite in some ways because you've heard it so much. And, uh, you know, it's not the real meat of the stuff, right? However it is. It's exactly what it is. It's the real meat of the stuff. At the beginning of Yeshua's ministry, at the very beginning, he had a public immersion. Now, John, Yohanan, you know, you could go, uh, go into lots of different kinds of mikvah, mikvah in lots of different kinds of places. But, when you go on our trip to Israel, you will learn why John was immersing where he was and why Yeshua went where John was. First of all, uh, it, 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 it tells us that John was immersing at Beit Erevah, okay, at the Jordan. Now, that area is where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on the Earth's surface, which means it's like the North Pole. If you're standing on the North Pole and you take a step, what direction do you go? South. Right. You mean you can't go east or west? No. no. Or north. You can only go, you can, after the one step you can. So if you're at the lowest point on the Earth's surface, every way you walk would be up. You got it. Okay. So, symbolically, you see the, the whole concept in the scripture, the wording of the, we, we're going up to Jerusalem, up to, because Jerusalem is up. However, to really go up, you need to start at the lowest point, right? So the major crossroads from the east intersected right there. And from there would be the actual beginning of the ascent to Jerusalem. And, you know, there's there's uh, sort of degrees of, of holiness. Uh, don't get hung up on the word, okay? But, uh, okay, like Israel is a holy land because it's set apart from all, all other lands. Jerusalem is a holy city because of all the cities in the holy land, that's the most set-apart city, and the most set-apart spot in that city would be the Temple Mount. So the thinking of Yeshua's time was that symbolically to show God the intent of your heart, okay, that you want to be pure as you come into his presence, one of the reasons to go into the mikvah, there were many, one of them was to begin your ascent to Jerusalem. That's it, right there at the river. That was the beginning of the ascent. You would go to the mikvah again, okay, in Jerusalem and again at the Temple Mount. 
but it's, it's always uh, appropriate for uh, a, a rabbi, a, a teacher, or someone in Yeshua's time to go into the mikvah before beginning or at the beginning of a spiritual adventure or journey or start of something new, a change of status in one's life. Okay, so whatever the, there was, uh, there were lots of reasons, but the location is important. Why? Was Yeshua making an ascent to Jerusalem? No, he didn't. Okay? But why did he go there? The simple reason is there was lots of people there. They were all gathering around John, and John was giving a message of repentance before you make the ascent, and the message of repentance because the Messiah is coming. Better than that, the wording is Messiah is here. was his wording? Yeshua went there because it was a public immersion. Many were in private. These were, uh, where he was, was public, of course. But one more thing. At that point, at that public spot, in, in, in a very spiritual atmosphere, because the whole concept was going up to Jerusalem, and we also know the time of the year, because it's during the high holy days. Okay? So again, the consciousness would be, you know, the, the focus is on these issues that we've just uh, recently been talking about. And as Yeshua came for his immersion, it wasn't quite the same as everybody else's. What was different about his? Okay, well, first of all, the Bible says while he prayed, while Yeshua prayed, he prayed at his immersion, something happened. The heavens uh, spread apart. They rolled back. They, oh, the heavens opened. Okay, I'd like to see that. I would like to see that. Okay. Uh, the Holy Spirit visibly, bodily, physically descended upon him. I'd like to see that. Okay, and the voice of the Father audibly declared, I mean, audibly declared to Yeshua, you are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. Whoa, what a way to start a ministry. That beats having hands laid on you by elders, right? Gosh, wow, what a deal. What a deal. At the beginning of his ministry, that's, the event, a little, little bit different at his immersion. And then top it all off, <clears throat> John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Whoa. In this, in this spiritual environment with a lot of people, John the prophet, he's recognized as a prophet, says, this is the Messiah. You see, the message, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We, we think, you know, we don't talk like that today. What he's saying is, the kingdom... Better yet, he's saying the king is here. People are saying, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? <clears throat> and that day, John said, it's him. He's the king. He's the Messiah. That's how it started. So you would think, <clears throat> pardon me, you would think at that point that, uh, let's go, let's start teaching. Let's start preaching. We have some miracles to do, right? You'd think that. It's not what happened. Didn't go to Jerusalem. Went to the desert. Went to the desert. Instead, in fact, the wording is, he was led. Okay, he was led. He was led. He led him. Hmm. He was led into a face-to-face encounter of spiritual warfare, of the highest magnitude, the most intense warfare possible, face-to-face. Yeshua meets Satan. That's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. Let's take a look. Turn to Luke chapter 4.
Then Yeshua, being filled with the Holy Spirit, this is just after his immersion, okay? The Spirit uh, descended like a dove, as a dove, landed upon him. Verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they ended, he was hungry. I think that's one of the biggest understatements in all scripture, okay? Try that sometime. How do you feel after one day at Yom Kippur? You guys, you just, everybody's looking for three stars, you know? Right, right. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Yeshua answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It's interesting that he, he quotes Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is the book that Yeshua quotes the most. It appears to be his favorite book. Okay, but there's some interesting things on, on the location, the desert, the bread and the manna. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that. Then the devil took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Interesting theology there. We'll talk about that next week, probably. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all of this is yours. That's the catch. Yeshua answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. He, he, he names him here. Okay, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. Then he brought him to Jerusalem. Well, I guess he's going to go to Jerusalem, huh? Okay. And set him high on the pinnacle of the temple. And I will bring a picture next week of that to show you what that looks like and where that is exactly, not where you might think. Okay. And I will show you how we know where that is today. That, that's next week. Put him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And then Satan quotes Scripture. A lot of interesting theology here. Satan quotes Scripture. A lot of people quote Scripture to either justify what they do or to get you to do what they want you to do. Satan does that too. How do you know the difference? Hang on, we're going to go through all that stuff. Satan quotes Scripture. He said, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. What he's saying is, there's a promise in the Bible that God will catch you. We'll talk about that next week. And Yeshua answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him for good. Nope. (laughs) Until an opportune, he comes back, until an opportune time. Okay, well, let's start this. This is really important stuff at at sort of the beginning of our study. Some questions, though, that we're going to answer. First of all, what can we learn about temptation from from this encounter? We can learn stuff about temptation, number one. What What can we learn about Satan? We can learn stuff about Satan, actually quite a bit, and how he attacks and how he tempts. Maybe not like what a lot of us think. Okay? And... The question is, what can we learn about Yeshua from this? And that's the most important thing. That will be brought together next week in, in a lot of detail. And how 
then are we to respond to such attacks? How do we respond, and how, how do we recognize attacks that are from Satan himself, okay, or from the demonic? Because as we talked about the last couple of weeks, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes we blame it all on the devil when it isn't. Sometimes it's just us or the, the flesh or the, or the world. How do you know the difference? Well, there's, there's some particular methods that if it's, if it's certain things, you know for sure that this is satanic in nature, okay, and that it's not the flesh or the world. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about some of those things. So, uh, we can learn about Yeshua and how he responded. But a question is, too, what's the purpose of Yeshua's temptation? Why did this happen in the first place? What's the purpose of it? It has a purpose. What is the purpose? So, to begin with, the time of the temptation is significant. When did this happen? Immediately following his immersion, his actually his, his introduction into public ministry and the proclamation of John, Behold the Lamb of God, so the immediate thing that Satan attempts to do is, is undermine that, right off the bat. He's on the threshold of his public ministry. He hasn't begun to minister yet, but before he goes to minister, something happens. Okay? And just a little side note for all of us. Whenever we are about to begin a successful spiritual endeavor, you can be sure, you can be sure of attacks. Okay? You can be positive of attacks. There was an appointment, an appointment here. Satan had a plan of attack, and, and we see that, okay? Okay, from the encounter, this encounter, we can learn some of Satan's methods. Not all, but some. Some of his methods. Okay, he uses these same methods against us. Same ones, okay? He, 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 so if we see some of his patterns, we see he does it over and over again. Aha, okay. Maybe so you can anticipate and even recognize when it's happening to you. That's the point of doing this. It was no coincidence that they met. It wasn't, oops, they came around the corner and oops, an encounter. No, no. He was led. And it says he was led by the Spirit. Oh, man, you mean the Lord can lead me into a place like that? Well, you know, you should, when he taught us to pray, he said, pray that God won't do that, <laughs> okay? That he doesn't lead you to that kind of a place of testing, okay? And uh, um, I know I've already made things clear with God on that one. I said, Lord, I don't want you to do that because I'll tell you right now, right up front, okay, right up front, I'm going to fail, okay? Now, I know that, you know that, so why even go through the whole thing? Because you know that I'm going to fail if I'm led to a place like that. So let's, let's just go back and work on grace and stuff like that because I, I can't, you know, I will fail if I'm led to a place like, like this. Okay? So, but you see, sometimes he does that. Why does he do it? That's part of the answer to the, these questions. Okay? It's not a, de- a desirable thing, but it happens sometimes. But if God is the one leading, there's a reason for it. And it's the same reason that Yeshua was led there. Okay? So don't remember, don't forget that question. It's coming back a little bit later. We will answer that. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Keep in mind, he was led by the Spirit. He was not led by the devil. Okay? It was a divine appointment. You know, he wasn't led, he was never led by the devil. He was led by the Spirit into an encounter with the devil. There's some other encounters with the devil that are up and coming in the future with him. Read the book of Revelation. Okay? And see how those go. Okay? Satan has a plan of attack against Yeshua. 
But God has a plan of defense. It's a plan of defense. That's what we see here. Because in spiritual warfare, you will be attacked. But what is your defense? That's our whole point in studying this. To know, to know what our defense is, to, to recognize the attacks, to see what they are, understand what they are, and to successfully defend against those attacks. The word here for tempt, we're going to look at three interesting words in all this today and next week. The word tempt here is the word for tested, test. Okay, The spirit led him to be tested or to be proved. The word to prove, to prove, proving is the word. Remember that God, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, God tested Abraham. Remember that, that? In Genesis 22? That wasn't the, t- the word, in our Bible says tempt, but it's not the word, it's test. God tested Abraham. We talked about those reasons in, in that message. Okay? Uh, God never tempts anyone. God does not tempt. The Bible is clear on that. But Satan's purpose here was to tempt. That's his purpose. But, but God's purpose was to test. Now, there is a difference in the two. Okay? They can dovetail together where God has one purpose, Satan has another, but you can be sure if that's God's purpose that you will be successful in that. Now, what does that mean to test? How does that work? Well, I shared this a number of years ago. Actually, it was a long time ago right now, so you probably all forgot the story. But there was a famous Bible teacher that grew up in the uh, south. It was in Texas, I think. A little town, and, but it was a railroad town. And this, this big bridge crossed the river. And uh, one year, the river washed out the bridge. So they had to rebuild the bridge. They, they rebuilt the bridge. And, you know, you do that so a train will go over the bridge, right? And so what they did was, all of a sudden, one day, he went out and there was this engine on top of the bridge, just sitting up there. Then they brought a second engine onto the bridge. The, builds, the bridge is built to hold one engine. They brought two and they just let them set up there. So they asked the question, are you, are you trying to make that bridge fall down? And the answer was, no. We're showing that it won't. They were testing it. Okay? They were showing that that, no matter what, that will hold double the weight it ever needs to. It won't fall. Okay? So a test is to show something won't break or won't fall. This test was to show that Yeshua will stand. Okay? And, and, uh, it will prove his strength. His strength. Now, the time of it is, is significant and the location. But in these tests, he will function in the human area, not the divine. He functions as a man. Okay? And keep in mind that, that, that the wording here, here in Mark, it, it, you know, people think, well, he was tempted three times. That is not what this is saying. Okay? Uh, what it's saying is, it's a, it's a verb of, of continuous action. He was being, keep continuously being tempted for 40 days. For 40 days. Why the three? He, he was tempted the whole time. These are the final three. These are the last three that we have. Why the last three are recorded? Because at that point, he's at his weakest. After fasting for 40 days, at this point, he's at his weakest. We get the last shot. Okay, these last three. But he's tempted the entire time. <clears throat> and as we started off with that scripture this morning, the, uh, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that Yeshua was tempted. In People ask, well, did he? Because they, because they, they look at these, and they go, yeah, but he wasn't tempted in this area, and he wasn't tempted in this area, and he wasn't tempted in this area. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in every area, in all points. Now, the whole verse is important, and we're going to kind of end with that today, but I'll give you a little preview here. He was tempted in, in all points. In every, every possible temptation, okay, he got. 
But that verse says something more, which is not good for us. It says, he was tempted in all points, as are we. That means we're going to be tempted. The devil, if something doesn't work, the devil will try a different way and try something else until he finds something that does. So the, it's not a one-time thing where you get tempted and, oh, man, I, I got through that, okay. Nope, it'll keep happening in different areas until he finds the weak points, and then, then bam. So it, it doesn't stop with us either. It continued with him. But we just have the, the final three. <clears throat> Pardon me. And it would, it would have been, I believe, a continual, relentless attack. And Yeshua is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And it would have covered the entire spectrum, the entire spectrum of human temptations. Okay, every one. And, uh, you know, if you take a look at the first one, the first one had to do with food. Is that what you would have picked? What would you have picked? You know? There's other things. And that's in the area of the flesh. We, when, we ta- we, when, you, when we use the word flesh, what comes into mind? What, what kinds of sins in, in the flesh? We think of, okay, other things. Well, you know what? After fasting for 40 days, okay, food is the one. Not the other stuff. Food is the one. Okay? <clears throat> now, last week, we looked at a key verse in spiritual warfare, which we're going to use many times we're going to use it here because this was this was an outline of Satan's attack. Turn to 1 John chapter 2 to look at it one more time. <clears throat> it's important to understand what this is saying. 1 John 2. And again, you've heard this stuff so much. If you've been around other places, it becomes almost trite. It isn't. It's really important to understand how this works. Verse 15. Pardon me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That was last week's message. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's the outline, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay, that's the outline, which I want you to keep that in mind. And one more verse, which I'm going to come back to later, which is very important. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. Here's the, here's the verse. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I believe when John wrote this, he had in mind the temptation of Yeshua and a few other things to link some things to. But he's saying, you know what? This is the way he does. Satan does a lot of this. Not just once or twice. It's, it's an ongoing thing in this area. Okay, those three particular areas. It's in these three areas that Yeshua is tempted. The same three, same three. It's the same three he used in the initial temptation of against humanity, against Eve in the garden. The same three. Why did he pick the same three? It's interesting. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 to lay a background. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. And I'll give you some uh, surprise, some surprise definitions of words. Verse one. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. 
Notice he's, he's created, okay? And he said to the woman, now, first thing you have to get over is that in the garden, things were different back then. Okay, there was, there was not like, seems to be a problem with people talking to animals. Animals talking back. That's a different message. But she isn't shocked at this. Just start, to, if a snake talked to you, I don't know. I think things were different then, a lot, than they are now. But look what he says. By the way, later, Yeshua makes it clear, he uses three different words of, of Satan saying, this is Satan. Okay, so there, there's no there's no question of who this is. And he starts it with doubt. Aha! You know what? One of the ways to know if it's a satanic attack, the Satan can attack you in every in any area, but in almost many other areas, it doesn't have to be a satanic attack. It could be some, something else that's causing your your temptation. But if it's this doubt of God's word, that's from Satan. Okay. He starts the conversation by saying, God has indeed said? He's, he's starting it by, by, by implying you should doubt what God says. Okay? That is a satanic attack. He, he said, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And this is a beautiful place. Look at it all. It is gorgeous, fantastic, beautiful. Why would he withhold anything from you? See the doubt? Okay. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. In other words, all of them, except one. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said. See, that's the point. And she said that correctly. God has said. And that was the, the doubt, the temptation. Has God said? God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. There was only one, in the whole garden, there was only one restriction. Only one. And here we go. And the serpent said to the woman, now he gets real blatant in doubting God. And now he comes against God. He says, you will not die. You know? What's he saying by that? Come on. God told you a lie. What God said isn't true. You're not going to die. Why, I'll show you. If you just eat of it, you'll see you're not going to die. For God knows, here's the next part of the doubt, that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Think of 1 John. Okay? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was, she saw, the eyes, that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Wow. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave her husband with her, and he ate. And I'll stop right there. Because I'm not going to go into the next verse that talks about the coverings. Because there was poison oak, but I'm not going to go into that part. Okay, <laughs> think about it. Okay, okay. That, that's for the t- that, that's for youth camp. We, we talk about the, all those details. Okay. Now, l- look at this temptation. We think, oh, this is no, this is important. She looked at the tree. It was good for food. That's where Yeshua is going to be tempted. It was good for food. This is in the area of the flesh. In the world of flesh. This is in the area of the flesh. There's nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong with eating. In fact, you need to. You have to eat. Try not doing it. You'll die. There's nothing wrong with eating. It was pleasant to the eyes. Okay? That's the desire of the eyes. First thing was the flesh. Okay? John's outline. The second part was pleasant to the eyes. It was... I got to tell you right now. Everything that God creates is beautiful. Of course it's pleasant to the eyes. All of God's creation... Did you ever make an ugly plant? No. An ugly person? No. 
There's nothing wrong with that either. And, and it'll make one wise. We're told in the Bible a lot of times to pray for wisdom. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? It goes into the area of the pride of life. Okay? So what's wrong with all that? There's nothing wrong with a tree. Okay? There's nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong with appreciating its beauty. There's nothing wrong with wanting wisdom. Except for two things. Okay? Number one, God said, don't touch it. <laughs> okay? That's what's wrong with it. God said, don't do it. Okay? Everything else is okay in this whole garden. Except that one thing. Don't do that. Anything else you can do. So, right there, that, that's the problem. Okay? Satan begins with doubt. Has God said? Okay? Has God said? Because we've... Okay, being a community, being people, being human, and we you know all of sin to fall short of the glory, you know all those verses, right? Being who we are. We, no one is immune from problems. In the life of a congregation, there's always ongoing problems and issues. They, they never stop, ever, okay? Never stop. Some of the problems in our past, in this congregation, have been... Okay, in all areas, we have people that have problems with, with certain areas of the flesh and certain weaknesses. And you, uh, Go down our list. Remember the list from, from two weeks ago? I have, have your names on that list and all that? All the, okay, I did. See, you have the list. I'll show it to you sometime, Okay. Okay, but then, but then we, you know, we have marriage problems and kid problems and all, all kinds of every, all human problems we have. Okay, however, there's another one, and we have problems with people who have been around, who've been coming, who join in and who do all these things and all the stuff that we do, and then, and then all of a sudden, I'll give you a real example. Uh, some people said, "I'd like to have a little, little chat with the elders," so we sit down, and they say. I've come to the conclusion that Yeshua is not the Messiah. They've been here a long time. I've come to the conclusion that he is not God. And, and you say, well, how'd you get that? And pretty soon you realize that they're, back in time, there were these doubts that started coming in and so on, and they, they, they moved away. Okay, It's a very dangerous place to be in. And so they left the congregation and went other places where he is not proclaimed as Messiah, where he's not, where he actually, they, they, they speak against him. Even mock us, okay? But the point of it is, those are satanic attacks. When it take, when it comes, you know, we can work with dealing with the flesh, all those things. But when that when that one comes, that's a toughie, okay? Unless they talk to you about it early on, and then we can sit down and start working with this. But usually, it's after they've made a decision of some sort. That's a satanic attack, and and we'll see in this in the study of spiritual warfare that it's his desire to draw you away. From Yeshua, to bring you to a place of destruction, okay? But when you start doubting, oh, and also, and then the second thing that goes along with that is that, well, I really don't think this is the Word of God either, okay? It goes right along with it. Now, why would they come to that conclusion? Well, because this says that Yeshua is God. Okay, well, anyway, but the point being is, they doubt God's Word, written and living, and then go to the uh, philosophies of man to find a meaning of life. So, that happens. Every now and then that happens in this congregation. Just letting you know, okay? <clears throat> now, he, asked, he said one more thing, remember? The doubt. When he said to Eve, he said, you won't die. You know, has God said that? You won't, you won't die. If you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. In fact, you know what? You know what? If you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him. 
Did you see that in there? Did you see where we just read that? You'll be like him. Satan kind of adds that little thing. You'll be like, see, it's a lie. But he adds it in. You'll be like him. Satan is saying, trust me. Trust me. See, the whole, right away we said we have this dichotomy. Who are you going to trust? Okay? When it's a satanic attack, Satan is saying, don't trust God. God has said, no, don't, don't trust this. Trust me. I, I can deliver stuff right now for you. I can bring you stuff right now. Okay? Trust me. We're going to see in a later study that that was actually the root of his downfall of Satan wanting to be like God. Adam and Eve, to look at the contrast, where were they when this happened? Do you have one of those little mint things anywhere? My mouth is dry. Where was Adam and Eve when this happened? In the most luscious, gorgeous, beautiful environment ever. Was there stuff to eat and drink? Oh, yeah. Abundance. Where was Yeshua? Thank you. <clears throat> in the desert. Nothing to eat or drink. A little different in the kind of temptation, huh? Okay? A little, little bit different in the two. But Yeshua is at his weakest point. And, there, and there's a good reason for that. So let's look at the first one today. Okay? Now, you all know the end of the story. Yeshua will stand strong against the attack. Okay? How would I fare after 40 days of fasting when the temptation is one of food? I don't know. I don't know what that feels like. Okay? I mean, I mean, uh, there's all kinds of tests that, that uh, psychologists and scientists and all have done on our various uh, needs and urges and desires and so on. But do you know what the number one urge and desire is in animals and in people? It's to eat. You might think, oh, no, it really isn't. Yes, it is. They did all kinds of these tests, on, and they figure out how to hook up rats, you know, with the brand little wires on all the different urges and desires of rats, okay? And they, and, and they've, they've realized that they can figure out, too, if the rat can press this button, he gets this desire satisfied, okay? This is, these are what uh, graduate students do with, with our tax dollars, Okay. <clears throat> So the rat goes over and he starts pressing. This is true. He spends all day pressing these self-gratifying buttons here. You know, he's really having a good time until he gets hungry. Then he quits and goes over to eat. Okay? So that becomes more important. But then when they take away the food, pretty soon, guess what? He quits pressing those buttons because he can't enjoy anything without food. Everything starts disconnecting. Food is really, really important. That's why the attack on food. <clears throat> it was in the area of the flesh. Remember our outline of John? A physical need, a physical need for food. What's wrong with eating? When you're hungry, nothing. Hunger is natural. It's a physical need. You've got to do it. You're going to die if you don't do it. Hunger is a God-created sense. God created us. To, 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 we want to eat. That's okay. Okay? It's a God-created sense. Nothing wrong with that. But it's to, like the rest of them, of the senses that God created, is to be satisfied within God's will. There are many people today that have problems or weaknesses in the area of food. Okay? And if that is where you have a weakness, guess what? That's where Satan's going to attack, in the area of food. Uh, extremes. You know, the extreme, I'm never going to eat again because I'm, I'm overweight when they weigh 90 pounds or whatever. And, and the opposite 
But you see, both of them will lead... Where will it lead? Both extremes to uh, weaknesses in food. It will lead to death, early death, either extreme. There's, there's a balance in the middle. Okay? But if you have a weakness in either of those things, that's where you're going to be attacked. Okay? And, and don't think because if you're a real fit, if you're a real fit person, okay, and, and work out and don't have any problems in these areas, it's, don't, don't think you can tell everybody else that has a problem just what to do about it, because I don't think you can, unless you've experienced what that feels like, okay, what that feels like. And, uh, so they need our prayers and our support and our help any way we can and our understanding. And, uh, keep in mind that that's Satan attacks in areas of weakness. So food can be one of those. Now, um, look at the attack. When Yeshua was at his weakest, Satan attempts with the food. But you know what? The wording there is the doubt, maybe. If you are the Messiah, command the stone become bread. That may be what he said. Okay? If you are the Messiah. I think he knew he was the Messiah. See, that word can be translated another way. The word since. Let's go with that one and see if it makes any better sense. Satan is saying, since you are the Messiah, you know, John pointed him out, you know, he, you know, he, he knows. Since you are the Messiah, make bread. Well, guess what? He could. He did. He fed the 5,000, which actually was 25,000 if you add it all up. He did that. Okay? But look at the temptation. So what's wrong with making the bread? The temptation was to do this, do what he could do and will do, but outside of God's will and timing. Outside of God's will and timing. Satan is very subtle. Okay? Yeshua is tempted to act independently of God's plan to satisfy a perfectly legitimate physical craving. There was a, it's a perfectly legitimate craving, and you're supposed to satisfy that, right? However, within God's plan. We can have a perfectly legitimate craving that's God planted in us. Uh, but we are to satisfy those within God's will only, not outside of God's will. God has given us the parameters for all those things. There's nothing wrong with those, with those, uh, uh, life urges. He created you that way. But He also created, He also gave us the instructions on the boundaries on how they're to be satisfied and fulfilled within God's will. Okay? Now, keep in mind, He had been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's important because He's supposed to be there. It's a divine appointment. The circumstances here were God appointed, including fasting and including being hungry. And Satan is trying to undermine what he's doing. The circumstance of hunger was God's direct will. Why? To show Satan something. That, that's a part of this reason. To show Satan, to show Satan something else about Yeshua's strength. Okay? If he had eaten, if Yeshua had said, well, okay. If he'd eaten, he would not have been at his weakest. The point is to withstand the temptation of Yeshua's, to stand the, 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 the temptation when he's at his very weakest time. He was asked to do, this is an important thought, he was asked to do a right thing. Nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry. Okay, At the end of a fast, nothing wrong with that. He was asked by Satan to do a right thing, but in a wrong time. Okay? Okay? A right thing at a wrong time. Satan can tempt you to do a right thing out of God's time. Okay? Think about that. God has had sustained Yeshua during the fast. And to accept Satan's challenge would be to say, God's provision has been insufficient. 
That was the temptation. God has said. Look at Yeshua's response. He always comes back with Scripture. His strength is in the Scripture. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Strength comes from the Word of God. Now look at what he said. Satan said, Since you're God, Yeshua responds, Man shall not live. You see, you see, you see where he's going with this one? As a man, Yeshua is saying, I have met your temptation. I'm not going to fall. I responded to you as a man, not as God. Because my community, when they're tempted, can say, yeah, but Yeshua succeeded because he wasn't, you know, he had all those powers we don't have. He wasn't using those powers. He faced him as we would, as a man. He did not overcome the temptation in the realm of his deity, only in his humanity. And a part of this reason was to see, or to show, if he would live by God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone. Later, those same verses are used about him. I am the bread of life. He fed the 5,000. In the wilderness, interesting parallels, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, not 40 days. God gave manna. Israel was tested. And so on. And interesting parallels. But this is how Satan tempts us as well. Part of it is to see if you will live by God's word. And we said last week, at least I think I did, and now I'll say it again. I thought about it. Um, what, what if you could... No, I didn't say it. Actually, I said it, I said it to, to somebody else. But it fit last week and today as well. Okay, let's suppose you could get away with something. Let, let's suppose that no one would know. No one would ever find out, ever. Okay, and you could get away with it. The question comes: Would you do it? If no one knew, you would never get in trouble, no repercussions, so on and so forth. See, that shows your character right there. Do you not do it because it's wrong to do, or do you not do it because you might get caught and get in trouble and have consequences? Well, there's going to be consequences at some point in time. But you see, do you live by God's word? That's, that's the question. And that's a part of the reason for these temptations. To see and to show. To see and to show. Satan comes to test us. Do you live by God's word? God has said, you won't die. Look at that, see? You can get away with it. No one will know. They'll never find out. Go ahead. You ever heard that one? He comes to bring doubt on God's word. Why is this happening in the first place? I have a question. Who knew about this? Who was there? How did the gospel writers, three of the four, wrote, wrote about this? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How did they know about this event, this encounter? Who was there? Well, just Yeshua and Satan. A few angels, a little later. Yeshua had to tell them. He sat down and walked through this with them. This happened to me. Wouldn't you like to have been around the campfire on some of those nights? Yeshua was saying, this is what happened to me. Okay? Yeah. Fun stuff, huh? Yeshua told them. Why? So we can recognize how Satan attacks, how he works, however subtle, and effectively overcome the attack. See him coming, get ready for him, and be victorious. The Spirit, this is important, the Spirit led him to the place of testing. It was testing. And was with him through the process of testing. God will be with us through 
our process of testing and temptation. We shared those verses uh, uh, from First from, uh, Corinthians 10, that there will not come a temptation to you that God does not provide a way out. Okay, he's with you in it. And we have no excuse. Okay, we have no excuse. In other words, we can't blame anybody but us. Satan attacked Yeshua when he was at his weakest. Satan attacks us when we're at our weakest. Just wait and see. When we're at our weakness, that's when the attack... He isn't quite fair. But, an important point, at his weakest, at his weakest, Yeshua is stronger than Satan at his best. Okay? That's a big difference, huh? In whose kingdom is whose here? Okay? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because in the next two temptations, Satan boasts about the world is mine. I can give it to whoever I want, and so on. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We began this morning with this verse, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He said the flesh is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeshua didn't sin. He did not sin. And he's our high priest, our mediator. Okay? And he understands our weaknesses. He understands our weaknesses. Now, I told you to remember that last verse, that last part of First John chapter 2, where we were, that said this, if, or he that does the will of God abides forever. That, that's the, the, the clincher to that whole section of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He who does the will of God will abide forever. The question is, whose will are we going to do? In these temptations of Yeshua, it's God's will versus Satan's will. Okay, The will of Satan, as we will see here, the will of Satan may not be to do something wrong at first. Okay, At first. Eventually, it will. But just not to do God's will. You can do something right, remember the wrong time? Nothing wrong with that. Go ahead and do it. Well, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with bread. But God's will was that he not eat. And Satan was just trying to get him to do something that was outside of God's will as a start. Yeshua addresses physical needs. In Matthew chapter 5, there's a major section, it's a long section on physical needs, including food. And Yeshua sums that up by saying, your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. It's not a surprise to him. He knows you have need of these things. But he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then he said, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things will be added unto you. So the question isn't, you know, well, you know, I'm never going to do one of these real blatant sins. Well, no, Satan's subtlety comes in of just doing something that maybe he's not really bad in itself, but it's just not in God's will. And that's where it starts. And, it beca- and you live your life according to God's word and do the will of God. And when that voice comes that says, God has said, don't listen to it. You won't die. 
I'll show you. Just take a bite. Trust me. That's where he's going with it. Trust me. In the next two temptations, we'll see that uh, Satan boasts that the world's been given to him. Look around at the world. How's it doing? Is that what you want? Is that what you want? His kingdom is in utter chaos. Okay? Utter chaos. Disunity. Everybody's fighting at each other. That's, that's his world. Okay, that's it. Okay, Yeshua said, my kingdom is not of this world. Not like this. Not like this. The subtlety comes in. You know, nothing wrong with bread. Except God said, in the case of Adam and Eve, don't eat that. In the case of Yeshua, you got to be at your weakest for this one. Listen to his voice and his alone. It's like Joshua. When he just said, you know what? you got to draw a line in the sand. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But it's for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And you'll find out in these next two temptations that what Satan ultimately wants is you to serve him. At that point, he's got you. Okay? Who do you serve? And why? We'll pick it up here next week. Our God and God of our fathers... I thank you that you give us instruction and clarity of understanding to be able to recognize some of these things. Lord, open our minds and our eyes and our hearts to be able to not only recognize temptations when they come and where they come from, but how to fight back. And Yeshua's example was he always used Scripture. Lord, help us to know and understand and memorize your word. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Lord, help us to be able to use it effectively against attacks of the enemy, against any kind of temptation when it comes. Lord, you've equipped us. Help us to learn to use the equipment that you've given to us and the discernment. And above all, I pray that we would, as Joshua uh, invited people to declare, Lord, that we would make the, the declaration that for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That means being different. That means understanding and knowing the scriptures and doing the scriptures, and that makes a difference in how we do things. Lord, strengthen us that we might do that which is right before you. And I thank you for Yeshua's example of not wavering under attack, even when he's at his weakest, standing strong and quoting your word. Thank you for giving us your word that it can be used effectively against Temptations and attacks of the enemy. Teach us to be strong. That we can come to the place where, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 6, again and again and again, he says, above all, stand. We stand. We stand strong. We stand against. Lord, help us to be able to stand and be strong and to win the battle. In Yeshua's name. Amen.